Yeah, it won our Canada Reads, oh, but it did not win in Canada Reads. Oh, it's one of the Canada Reads. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. I was yes, yes. the Canada Reads. I heard all those books. They didn't sound very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Which one won? The one with the ducks? Ducks won by Kate one. Beaton, a graphic novel. Oh, okay, right. You were talking Defended about Defended by Danielle here at the library. Yes, right, right, right. Did you do Hotline? Were you defending? No, no, I did Mexican Gothic. No, uh, Jennifer Eisman did Hotline. I was listening to Canada Reads like on the TV, like, you know, they didn't sound very interesting. I liked this one. Oh, okay. This one. Okay, so only one, none of us other read it. Um, well, anyways, I'll do it. And um, and if you get hold of it, it's, uh, it's a very, it's a very quick, you know, it's an easy read. It's uh, 270-ish pages, but small and very easy to read. I haven't read, I hadn't read anything by this author until now. I don't know if anybody read previous, no. It's his fourth novel. Um, and it's, uh, so it's a novel, definitely fiction. It's not a memoir, except that, and it's got the little, a novel somewhere on here. I like them, they like put it on just so you shouldn't think that it's nonfiction. Um, but it's based, it turns out that the story is based on his own experiences and, um, and that makes it, I think, very interesting. I don't know if I'm so inspired to read his previous books, but, but this one is really, um, it's an interesting look at immigrant, the immigrant experience, the immigrant experience to Montreal and relatively recent. So when, what immigrant experience is he writing about here? It's, it, he sets it 1986, 1987, um, which is for us relatively recent. I mean, we can remember it's not ancient history for most of us. Um, and, um, and, and it's from the point, told from the point of view of a Lebanese immigrant and we re remember when there was the, the civil war in lebanon started in the 70s and a terrible situation in the country and poor it was i mean i don't know politics there is very complicated but uh, it was different militia groups fighting each other it was christians versus muslims and different factions within again the middle east is always very very complicated but it was a terrible time and people who were able, who had the financial means or the connections or an ability to leave and the desire to, most of them did. And many came, if you'll remember probably, to Montreal because, especially those who spoke French. But that was the situation and those were the immigrants who were encouraged, I guess as same thing now, if you have French, you're put up higher on the list of um, getting your application uh, accepted. So he and and he came as a young child. He was born. Dimitri Nasrallah was born in 1977, which makes him 46 now. Um, yeah. Yeah. He said that he was he was eight years old when they came. Here. He was even younger, no, he was 11 years old when he came here, but he was younger when they left Lebanon with his family. So he and his family left Lebanon 
Um, they went to Cyprus, to Greece, to Cyprus, to Dubai, and then they were finally granted their um, immigrants visas to come here. And they came to Montreal. It sounds like um, he made reference in a couple of the interviews that I listened to him, to him talk with, that his parents lived north of Toronto, and he moved back to Montreal. So he lives here, but his parents, and then he has one sister, who he mentioned, I don't know where she lives, but, and he teaches at Concordia. He's a professor or a lecturer at Concordia. He's an editor, he writes, he, um, publishes anthologies and he, and he edits collections of work. And this is his fourth novel. So he said that, um, and interesting how an author takes is in this case, and from what it sounds like he's been taking that experience and basing his different bits, pieces of writing on what the experience that he had of coming to Montreal with his family. So, he writes in, in, in one of the interviews, he said, I remember it as the single worst year of my life. This is how Dmitri Nasrallah recalls the winter of 1986-1987. He and his family had escaped Civil War Lebanon and spent a reasonably, as he described it, comfortable period of time in Greece. And then the Nasrallah family, 11-year-old Dimitri, his younger sister and their parents, found themselves in a small one-bedroom apartment on University Street in the McGill Ghetto. So just as in the book, the character, um, that's where the mother, the young mother with her young son, is living in the McGill Ghetto. And as he recalls it, the author, he said, it was a city in utterly unlike any place that he and his family had ever experienced, not like Greece, not like Cyprus, Dubai. They were in the Middle East still. And they come here, and it's the late fall, the eve of a Montreal winter, and apparently, I don't remember that many years back, but apparently that winter, 86, 87, was harsh even by our local standards. So imagine what it was like for these people who came from the Middle East where winter maybe was a little rain and once every four years, maybe some snow. But they came to this winter. And he said that, so his parents who were professionals, it sounds like the family was pretty well off in, in Lebanon, and they came here and they were looking for work. And his mother was a French teacher, just like the character, just like the narrator of the story is a French teacher. And she had been told, as Muna, the woman who's narrating the story, that you'll come here and you'll be able to find work because French teachers, you know, this is Quebec and you speak French and you're a trained professional with experience, no problem. His mother was not, this was not true because I don't know what the situation is today, but back in 1986, Lebanese immigrants with a different accent were not hired to teach in the local French schools. I don't know if it's still the same today, but that was very much the experience of the Nasrallah family and the mother who kept trying and was quite taken aback, as Dimitri remember, recalls, that my mother expected to find work. I mean, that was the whole reason we came to Montreal, because she was going to find work at my father. I'm not sure what his profession was, but, and the only thing she could find was a job in phone sales at a weight loss center. So that was true. So the story, and it's, and the novel is, the, the narrator of the story is this young woman, Muna, um, who comes with her young son, Omar, to Montreal. She's fleeing the Civil War in Lebanon, and she's also, she's either helped or pushed out, depending how you look at it, by her in-laws after her husband had was kidnapped during, during the war and presumed dead. So we're, she's, she's a young widow with this son who's come to Montreal the same way as the Nasrallah family came because the mother thought that she would find work as a French teacher. And just as Nasrallah's mother in real life could not find, and the only job she found was in phone telephone sales for a weight loss center, 
same thing um, happened. This is the narrator of the story. That's what she has to, she comes to realize that nobody after months of trying to get a teaching job, interview after interview, and realizing that they're not going to hire me because I don't speak the same kind of French and I've got to find something and my money is running out and I'm here with my child and I need to pay the rent. Um, and she answers an ad and that's the opening scene in the book that Muna answers an ad that she's seen in the paper. And remember 1986, so cell phones, I'm trying to remember back, I mean, maybe they sort of, if they did exist like very rudimentary ones, huge, big, I don't know, I don't remember the technology you know why because it all changed so quickly but definitely she's making phone calls and there are phone booths and you put your quarter in the phone booth right like this is like phone booth you put a quarter it's not even a quarter anymore you do find one you get 50 cents i saw one somewhere in the hospital um and so so in that seminal family episode with a few tweets most notably the downsizing of Nasrallah's family, which came as a family of four, the parents and the, and the two siblings, downsized into this story. So to a single mother and her one son, this is the basis of Hotline. Published here in Montreal by Esplanade Véhicule Press, local Montreal um, publishing house where Nasrallah also it serves as an editor to some of their publications. Um, this is his fourth novel. And as I said, I haven't read the other ones, but according to the reviewers, it takes his work to a new level of sophistication. And it's, you could call it, and I think too, I mean, it, a, a significant addition to the literary chronicling of the Montreal immigrant experience. He says, and he says, what got my parents into Quebec was their were their French skills, and what moved them ahead in the line was my mom being a French teacher and supposedly being able to use those skills here. Uh, and then when she got here, nobody would hire her because who's going to hire an immigrant to teach French in Quebec? They don't tell you that when you're applying. So you come here under false pretenses with these hopes of a new life, and then you get here, and it's not all so rosy. And if you remember to 1986, the time that this mother and son, as the Nasrallah family themselves, arrived in Quebec was a time of political and cultural ferment. Isn't it always a I was going to say. I mean, doesn't really, okay. But they are ill-equipped to understand. I mean, they're coming from the kind of ferment that is war and violence and killing and and, and you know, hiding out in basements and grenades and bombs and missiles are exploding above and people are being killed and kidnapped and shot. So the political thing about whether, you know, French language is getting enough, like that seems so insignificant and petty and minor in the scheme of things to these immigrants, but that's what they come to in Quebec. And, he does it, he really, um, I thought, very skillfully worked that situation. He, there's no, um, not proselytizing, but there's no, there's nothing dogmatic about the story. He says, and he said, Nasrallah, the author, I did not want to make this a sovereignty or anti-sovereignty novel. It seems to me that there are enough of those in the in the French Quebecois literary scene because a lot of the fiction that you read about Montreal over the last number of decades comes down to this question of the two solitudes. But there was another side, and that and the situation was not on the radar of these immigrants until they ended up being in the middle of it, because I guess you could say in the middle of it, because Una is a French teacher, and well, if she was going to Europe and looking for a job, she would be hired if, you know, she was a good teacher and they were looking for teachers and she spoke French, but in Quebec, not, because her, her French was not Quebecois French, so it was a tricky thing that he managed to do, which was just describe the experience of this young single mother and her son as they come here all alone and her money is running out and she has to figure out 
how to, how to take care of herself and her son. And winter is coming. And winter is a big, um, a big, big factor, as it is to us every single year, even those of us, and she has a line in the book where when Muna should, and Muna works at this weight loss center. And it turns out that she becomes very good at this job because, and I thought that was a skillful thing that the author did in the book because, you know, when she, when she opens, when he opens his story with Muna, this boy and applying for this job at this weight loss clinic. And I think instinctively as a reader, you're thinking, oh my gosh, this weight loss clinics, like this is going to be a disaster. She's not going to get the job or she's not going to, how can you make sales? She's not going to be able to manage. And then, you know, after a few days, she's not going to even have a paycheck and what's going to happen. And, 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 and it's getting cold and her kids and she and her, they need winter clothes. Like, what do they know about how you need to dress in Montreal in the winter? This isn't Beirut where you could get away with a, you know, a light down jacket. This is, yeah, as, as he describes in the book, like winter, it's really good. Uh, what is that song? The famous song, uh, Mon Pays c'est l'hiver. Yeah. So this is really, I think this could be the byline of this book is Mon Pays c'est l'hiver. And she and the book opens and it's late fall and winter is coming. And we, the readers, especially those of us who live in Montreal, know what's going to be coming. Muna, she doesn't know what she's headed for. Never mind, you know, that she's looking. I mean, she has serious concerns about she needs to get have a paycheck every two weeks in order to be able to pay the rent and to buy food for her son. So this is when they're coming. But he says specifically, I did not want to make this. This is not about that. But the issue is there. And it's a very honest, I thought, a very honest and very realistic uh, and very easy to read. I mean, I'll tell you, you get this book and you'll read it. It's very quick. There's no, no pyrotechnics in the language. The language is very plain. Um, not that it's not well written. It is. But it's to me, was a pleasure to read because there was nothing, nothing difficult to read in it. You just read. You read the story of this woman and, and it's, you know, you're, you're getting right into her and into her into her hopes and her dreams and her struggles with trying to deal with this situation in her life. Um, immigration is a very difficult thing, no matter when and where. Of course, different circumstances, there are, there are much more challenging ways and much more challenging situations. But even if you come with money and even if you come with language, the idea of leaving your your country where you've grown up, where your family is, where you know the culture, and moving to another place is never going to be easy. For the little boy, for Omar, the challenge plays out most starkly at school. His mother, Una, her challenge is how do I how do I make enough money to be able to rent and food? And clothing and clothing not 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 what's stylish or fun it's the serious business of enough kind winter clothes so as not to freeze and she realizes this as winter sets in and they're standing outside at the bus stop and it's late fall and the weather is getting colder and she's realizing that her son does not have warm enough clothing and she also doesn't have warm enough clothing and there are those scenes of where she so she works downtown and they live downtown in the in, in the student ghetto so she tries to be underground as much as she can you know there's the reference to Montreal's underground city where she goes takes the metro and goes underground and doesn't resurface until she has to which is what people do during the winter um but uh so that her challenge is how to support herself and her son but for a for a little for a young kid his challenge is school and school is a challenge anyway for kids but imagine, and this is always, you know, the kid who comes and who comes from a different culture and doesn't have the language. And it turns out the language. So whereas Luna, and this is the same as the author himself, his mother spoke French well enough to be a French teacher. But he, the author says, he did not speak French. He spoke Arabic and he knew English. And that was it. So when he came here, he too had to go into a class d'accueil and he had to learn French and he was not doing so well. And there was talk and they held him back a, a year because he didn't do well in his class d'accueil. And in the novel, the same thing happened. There's a scene, a very well described scene when, when Muna is called in, the, the, her son, Omar's French teacher calls up or 
sent her a message. I would like to, to talk to you. And she has to go in and have a meeting with the Monsieur Pierre Gagnon, the, the teacher who's telling her, you know, I don't know your son, like it doesn't seem like he's doing very well. He's not very communicative. And uh, is he getting enough stimulation at home? Are you? And she says to him, well, I'm a French teacher. And he says, oh, French teacher, he's very impressed. And she says, yes, well, but I couldn't get a job here. And um, and uh, and he says, well, but the son doesn't speak French the same way as the author, just because his mother spoke French and taught it, he didn't speak French. And it was a very, very, as he said, I remember it as the single worst year of my life. And as a child, these, these years are very, um, they stay with you. The memories and the, the you know, the, don't lightly want to use the word trauma, but the the feelings of um, of struggles and of negativity remain and remain with us into adulthood. So clearly, it remained with the author because it became part so much part of him that he was finally able to write a book about this. Um, so he said, he said, I remember me, my personal situation. The author was saying. There was this inconvenience that I seemed to pose for my French teachers, especially, he recalled. It made me so unconfident in my French that I ended up having a very negative relationship with the language that stayed with me for a long time. So I thought, now that's interesting because obviously his parents moved to Toronto. I don't know the timeline of what happened, um, but he came back and he lives in Verdun and he teaches at Concordia and he says, so writing about Omar's situation in my novel was a chance to reflect on that all these years later. Now that I live in Montreal, again, and I use French for a good chunk of my life, it's fine. But it certainly was not encouraged, and I did not have an easy time with it back when I was a young child. The heart of the book, however, is the mother. The novel is written in Muna's first person. It's a, he, he takes on a first person narrative voice, which again, okay, I mean, I guess it shouldn't make a difference if an author is good enough, whether it's the same gender or not, but he's writing from the mother's point of view. And the, and the, and he pulls it, he really does pull it off with flair. And it's that interesting choice, I think, that he didn't choose to write it from Omar's point of view. He could have written it from the little boy's point of view, and that would have been, you know, more autobiographical, or at least it could have been, you'd say maybe that was the stronger basis for what would have been, could have been a different kind of story, but he doesn't. He chooses to write it from the mother's perspective. And it turns out, I think, that that gives the book its emotional heft because if he would be writing from this young boy's perspective like okay it would have been his own perspective years told year with years of maturity and and reflection behind it but still if he was going to make it honestly an eight or nine or ten or however old young boy's voice he could only have a certain amount of emotional maturity because otherwise it wouldn't make sense if you're writing from an eight-year-old's point of view you can only be an eight-year-old and understand the world through your eight-year-old eyes. But if he chose no to tell it through the mother's eyes, because then he's telling it through a, I don't know, 28-year-old woman. I think she's that she was 20 when she had at least in the story had the had the, her son. So at least a still a young woman, but 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 definitely more mature than the eight-year-old. Um the mother-son relationship is drawn. And it really comes off with an especially nuanced assurance. And every scene of their relationship and the conflicts, the love, but the conflict seems to ring true. He said, and this is so interesting, he, he said, it was strangely freeing for me to write in that voice. And I felt that, you know what, if I could embody the voices of two imaginary dictators in a fictionalized country, which were the protagonists of his 2018 novel called The Bleeds, B-L-E-E-D-S, which I haven't read, but it was apparently 
two imaginary dictators in a fictionalized country. That's what he wrote about. So he said, if I could write like that or think that I could hold that off, then and, and have people feel somewhat convinced by that, then I should be able to handle my own mother, he said. But not so simple, right? Easier to handle fictionalized dictators' voices, I mean, dictators' voices in fictionalized countries than your own mother. Not so easy. He says, and he says, so you know what I did? I realized this was in another interview I was listening to. Um, he said, what I do is I work through my issues. It's my therapy in my books. And so now, this now here I am, a man, you know, in my mid-40s, I'm finally able to write about my relationship with my mother. So the he says, and it really speaks to the malleability of identity. And given the hardships that a lot of people face as immigrants, you know, there's an an element of wanting to reinvent yourself. Like, yes, she, the character comes as did his mother wanting to be a French teacher because that's what she was. She was a French teacher. And throughout the book, Muna says, you know, I'm a French teacher. I happen to be working in this call center, in this, you know, for selling weight loss um, meals, but really I'm a French teacher and her passion. And she tells us in, in the book, I went to university, I studied, I got my degree as a teacher while the civil war was going on in Lebanon and the bombs were falling around us. And my uh, my mother-in-law, who as she's saying that she, she describes briefly, she marries her husband um, and her husband's family did not want him to marry her because they are a wealthier family and they had their eyes set on another girl from a wealthier family for their son. But their son falls in love with Muna and, uh, and they get married. Um, but she's but being a French teacher, being a teacher, she's a passionate teacher. And here she comes and she has to take this job. So maybe she's going to reinvent herself. She said, and he says, you know, I find that it's quite refreshing for a person to be able to do that several times over in a lifetime. To feel that maybe you can close one chapter and open up another one. And in this case, Muna's a young woman. She's only 28 years old. It's not like she's coming as a 50-something-year-old who's like it's already a little bit maybe late to change careers if you're changing countries and you have to go back to school. Um, and even a slight main change can really affect a person's outlook. And he puts that into his the story because by the end of the, the story, so Muna is Muna, M-U-N-A. But when she gets this job, um, at this weight loss clinic, at this weight loss center, she goes, and I'll just read you a little bit from the opening since most of you haven't read the book. The book is divided into three, into three sections. So the first section is called No Experience Necessary, which, you know, like when they put in, in want ads, job ads, that the kinds of jobs where no experience necessary, we'll train you on the job. The second and the longest part of the book is called here, the nights are endless. Guess what that's about? That's when winter sets in and Muna is having to figure out how to deal with winter. And the third um, and, and the last chapter is the, um, is the shortest one. And that's the one in which he introduces a sense of hope. And this is an interesting, I thought also an interesting aspect to this book. Um, he calls this one, what we bury lives on and on, meaning our, you know, our memories and our experiences, no matter how we bury it, I mean, something, there is something actual that happens in the story that's buried and comes to life. Um, but that all the things that we keep within ourselves that we bury, they still live on and on in our, in, in who we become. So the opening, the no experience necessary section of the book, how does he begin? At five minutes to two, I check my face in the mirrored walls of the building's lobby, straighten my blazer, touch up my lipstick, and then board the elevator to the sixth floor. I've been through this process many times now. I'm always hopeful that this time will turn out differently, inshallah. And an interesting thing that he does in this book, he puts in bits of Arabic words. 
but he does it very cleverly and not, he doesn't have a glossary at the back. He doesn't put them in italics or in, um, or in, uh, what's the word, um, okay. you know, in quotation, but in when, what's it, when the, uh, is italics when you slant it? Quotation mark. Right. Okay. So it's not, it's, it's just part of the regular text. And after a while, I mean, you could look up to see what, inshallah, we probably pretty well know, but then he, he, she has, Gina narrator, has other words, which you get to know, and they just end up adding a flavor, like, to the story of how this woman would really be talking and would be thinking, so they don't detract, and I think it was well done that there were no, um, no quotation marks or no glossary at the end, so she's, she says, I'm already, and this is what, what an upbeat, your positive attitude, this, this, whoever this person who's talking, we don't know yet, is, is, is writing in. I'm already finding things to like about this building. The lobby is bright and well kept. There's a security desk to keep out all the Abu Rehas, which I did not look up, but I don't know what it means in Arabic, but from doing drugs in the public washroom. So we have to look up, I should look up that word. Anyways, the, even the elevator is a good size. So these are already little details. And this is just in the opening paragraph that this, this woman, this young woman has learned in her search for a job that if the lobby looks well kept, if the elevator is a decent size, this is already a good sign that this firm is somewhat respectable because she's probably been other answered, other ads, no experience necessary with not such pleasant results. I know myself. I grow attached to the little touches like this too fast. And I begin to imagine myself anywhere and everywhere in an effort to will the world to bend my way for once. I am a dreamer. My mother always said so. The elevator's doors open at the sixth floor where a promising white lobby and relatively clean carpeting greets me. Someone has thought to clean out the large ashtray garbage can by the elevator, so it's not the first smell to backhand you when the doors slide open. Along the walls to the right is one of those modern-looking glass doors, and stenciled across it in neon red letters is the name Nutri4, F-O-R-T, like strong, strength, or four, depends on body. I step inside and announce myself to the board receptionist, Muna Haddad, I say here for the information session. We spoke earlier. She rolls her eyes, checks her list, and then points to a room down the hall. Follow the signs for the information session and wait with the others. Help yourself to the free coffee. Um, I hope she didn't notice that my eyebrows perk up at the mention of free coffee. I find that impressive. At the end of the hall, I step into a conference room with windows facing out over the north end of the city. And then What's also nice about this book is it's fun once in a while to read a book that's set in Montreal because when she talks about what she sees from the window, you can see the McGill University campus and the mansions along Dr. Penfield and the names he all writes in the French, the French version, and then Mount Royal or Mont Royal. And, and then this, this sharply dressed blonde woman walks into the room, bonnet, bonnet, Kennedy, at Trumon, says this woman, welcome to Nutriforest information session on an exciting new career opportunity for the right person. Tell me, how many of you would say that you're happy with your lives? Well, this is a great opening, you know, chapter to this. So, you know, all the people who are here and they're men and women, because they weren't really sure, I guess, whoever applied. Um, and, and but this is how many are happy with your lives. This is an introduction to Muna, who's just come here with her son, fleeing the civil war and the and the chaos and the violence in Lebanon, trying to find a job. And here, this blonde lady says to them, "How many are happy with your lives?" So, and it says this Lise Charbonneau, who turns this day the head of the sales staff, and she's doing the hiring, and she presents the product. And the product is this weight loss system where the whoever signs up for the, for this product, they send you boxes of your meals, like the, your, the meal plan comes in little boxes. So you don't have to worry about calculating, figuring out what to eat or calories or anything. You just sign up and you pick your meals, breakfast, lunch, supper, snacks too, and it gets sent to you in the mail. This remember this free Amazon days, and then she explains to them, comes in, 
un unlabeled brown boxes. You can have them, you can pick them up somewhere, you know, if you don't, if you don't can't have it delivered to your door. So nobody knows you shouldn't be embarrassed that this is what you're getting, this weight loss product. Um, and so what's the job of the uh of what's the job that they're being hired here to join the sales staff to make cold calls and also then to follow up on people who've signed up to check in with them every few weeks to be their counselor and um, encouraging voice to see how they're doing. So really, you know, isn't the feeling you get when she's, this is her interview, like you think, oh, this is like, this is not good. This is not going to work out. Um, and what he does in this book, besides describe winter and describe from a fall till uh, late spring in the lives of this mother and her son, but he also writes a hopeful and positive, uh, an immigrant story that ends on a hopeful and positive note, which is, as one reviewer wrote, unusual these days, because, you know, so many of the books written contemporarily will write about the immigrant experience, will write about, you know, and definitely from a racist point of view, there was a long um, review in Walrus magazine about how immigrant stories are not usually hopeful because the focus is on um, various, you know, prejudices and various uh, negative, negative, negative. So here he has taken his experience, based it really on his parents, in his parents, their story, um, but written a very hopeful novel. So it's um, it's something that is very nice to read and when you come and I kept the whole time I kept thinking so even after this this opening interview um and as as Muna our, our the woman our, our narrators describing slowly during this interview and this presentation the candidates leave the men all leave and then some of the women leave when they realize that this is what's entailed in this job and the and then when, when this woman, Lise, is ending her presentation, she's describing the regional advertising campaigns that they take out in magazines and newspapers, television to bring in clients through a hotline number. The book gets its title. That's where the title hotline comes because Muna is working on the hotline. And that's so that's where that's where he takes this title. So he, she says, this Lise, who's the introducing the and, and interviewing and giving this presentation, she finishes by saying, those of you who are well organized will see your efforts rewarded when people finally muster the courage to pick up the phone to call the number, the hotline, they are automatically directed to a consultant for follow through. And that's who you will be, those of you who will be chosen and successful. Those of you who are well-organized will see your efforts rewarded, which again, all sounds like the sales pitch and, you know, who believes this? She finishes by saying, don't you ever feel there are some things in the world that you just don't want to talk about with the people in your lives? What we offer is a little window to the outside, someone our clients can confide in with information that's too sensitive to reveal in their daily interactions. Many people don't have any daily interactions at all. Our hotline is a shortcut through all those complications of daily life. On the phone, you may be filling in for a loved one, you may be a coach or even a disciplinarian. People won't tell you what they need, but if you make it your skill to figure out what they do say, then you will be successful. I'm going to leave these information packages here at the back. You'll find an application sheet. If you're interested, fill one out and leave it at the front desk. You can expect a call from us in the next two days. If you're selected, we start on Monday. And out goes this. Lee says good afternoon, leaves the conference. And then Muna says, well, once she's safely down the hall, about half the people around the table, including all the men, gather their things and make their way out without even looking at the information package. Some are complaining about how this is one of the scams that they hear about on TV. One woman shares the story of a friend who tried this sort of service and it's really just about siphoning as much money as possible from those poor people looking for help. 
But she says, well, I can't help but being drawn to the stack of applications that Lisa's left behind. I find certain people quite magnetic, meaning this Lisa, she's very taken with her. So she takes an application form and she says, do I have any choice? I'm going to apply. And apply she does, she gets the job. And as the book goes on and it's 270 pages, she stays at the job. And contrary to what I was expecting, I didn't expect she'd get hired or I didn't expect it would work out or I didn't expect she'd have, I mean, the paycheck at the beginning is very, very minimal and she's really struggling and she's barely making it. Um, make her ends meet till the end of the to the end of the month or the end of the of the two week pay period, but she sticks it out and she finds herself very good at it. And it's the way he contrasts. You know, when you think of it, and here is Muna come here all by herself, no one to talk to. And I thought as I was reading it too that she had no interest in joining. There was a Lebanese community. There was an immigrant community of others who had come from Lebanon at the time. There was a church to belong to because, you know, when she keeps saying inshallah, I was thinking she Muslim, but she describes her wedding as being um, in a church, in a Maronite church. So they're Christians, or it seems that way, um, but she doesn't join anything. The apartment that she finds herself in, it seems like was similar to the Nasrallah family's experience where they only stayed for one year because when they landed, they didn't know anything about the city of Montreal. And this apartment, and, and he said, my family, who had come from comfortable circumstances and went on into more comfortable circumstances, that one year, luckily for the Nasrallah family, was a blip in their otherwise generally comfortable circumstances. And they lived in a one-bedroom apartment, all four of them, in the student ghetto on University Avenue. So that's where the author sets this story. But this Muna has, she, she doesn't, doesn't have anybody to help her, no one. She and her son are this little unit there in that high rise apartment building that's really filled mainly with students. And as she describes it, it comes furnished. She gives her son the bedroom because she says an eight-year-old boy should have a place to have his where his things and his toys and he should get the bed. She sleeps on a sagging old sofa bed in the living room that she unfolds every night that she says, you know, who knows how many have slept here before. But generally it's students. There's one Jewish character in the book, Mr. Saltzman. He seems to be his family's been the owner of this apartment building. And he's portrayed as a sympathetic fellow. He sits in his office there when she comes into the building every night, watching TV and his TV shows are what all in the family. It's interesting when he puts a little bit of, you know, back in time work. Um, but he's nice to her. And he says to her at one point, my family knows about immig the immigrant experience and the way he describes it. They came over as Holocaust survivors with nothing under much worse circumstances. So he's sympathetic to this young woman, especially because generally his, his tenants are students who can make a mess of the buildings who make a lot of noise. And he senses that here's this young woman with a son, that she's going to be a good tenant. He shows her downstairs in the building where there's a storage room full of discarded uh, items that when students move out, they don't know and they're not interested or whoever the tenants are. And he says to her, help yourself to anything you need from down here, which is very helpful for her. Um, so he's a little bit of contact. Her co-workers, because she takes the job and she goes there every single day. She walks her son to school in the morning, and then there's the whole thing with the school that her son is having a difficult time, as did the author. There's that great scene where she's called in to have a meeting with the teacher, and we and she and she has to go because you know, and here she is. She considers her still considers herself a teacher because that's who she is. That's her identity. This uh, salesperson for this this, you know, weight loss program company, this is just what she has to do now, but she's really, really a teacher. Um, and so this scene where it must be a similar scene that Nasrallah or his mother had to go through. So she goes and she, um, she says to her son, as they get up in the morning, she says, what's your teacher's name again? <laughs> Monsieur Pierre. And she says, okay, so don't lie to me. Are you in trouble? I don't think so. No fights, no bad grades. He can't, Think of anything. When I ask if his teacher is meeting with the other parents too, he shrugs. 
I give up, take his almost finished cereal bowl over to the sink and tell him to go brush his teeth. She says, I haven't seen the inside of his school since I came here last August to enroll him. At the time, I was naive to worry, naive enough to worry that I might end up teaching at the same school as Omar. I wondered how he might react to me as being his teacher. I had no idea what was to come. Now, as we're walking through the halls, past lockers and classroom doors and art projects pinned to the wall, I once again feel the ache of not being a teacher. I thought I could let it go like one of the New Year's resolutions I learned about at work. Because in the at work, you know, they learn all this psychology they're telling you. So in in the people will make all these New Year's resolutions. They'll be not very good over the holiday period. Here you must understand. And then in January, they're all going to feel very remorseful because they'll gain some weight. And you have to learn the psychology of what to tell your clients when you call them up and you say, Mr. So-and-so. So what did the scale say to you this month? But don't worry. You know, we all have to like that. So she says, um, we arrive at the door to Omar's class and I see his teacher's name, Pierre Daniel, and then class d'accueil, which is the classroom all the immigrants are assigned to until they learn enough French to join the kids in the regular classes. I tap firmly, entrez, I hear Monsieur Pierre call. We step in and Omar's teacher rises from his desk. He is a thin man with a thick mustache and wire rimmed glasses, balding but with long hair that's tied in a braid. You can picture the type. Unlike the more formal look that I usually saw on male teachers back home, he wears sandals with fixed wool socks, a loose vest, and a beaded necklace. Welcome, Madame Hedad. Ça va? What a pleasure to finally meet you. He reaches out to shake my hand. Then he turns to Omar and says, Bonjour, mon grand. Would you mind giving your mama and me a few minutes to talk? Go play with your friends. Omar gives me that helpless look that I instantly read as, but I have no friends. Smiling, I nod to the door as if to say, see you later, Habibi. Once the door closes behind him, Monsieur Pierre pulls two of the kids' little chairs out and invites me to sit with him, our knees jutting up between us. You can picture this scene. Thank you for taking the time to come down here. And of course, you have a nice classroom. On the walls above the board, there is a large blue and white Quebecois flag, as well as a series of posters labeled Nouvelle France that show European explorers planting flags on mountains and navigating rivers. I try to make learning a living activity, he says. I want to surround the kids with history and culture so they learn it for themselves. I'm sorry, I'm talking very fast. Do you understand me okay? Yes, sure, I speak fluently. I am a French teacher too. Ah, that's wonderful. I didn't know that. Where do you teach? I'm not teaching anymore. It was before we moved. When did you move here? Last August. Oh, well, bienvenue. He lets out a laugh and slaps his thigh. It's hard to get any information out of Omar. He doesn't participate? Monsieur Pierre shakes his head. I try to engage him, but most of the time he just stares out the window and waits for the day to end. Is he tired? Does he stay up too late? No, I make sure he gets to bed at eight every night. He generally sleeps okay. I don't know if he's told you, but before we moved to Canada, he missed school for a year. In Lebanon, where we come from, there is a war. He hasn't told me anything, he says, looking surprised to be hearing what he's hearing. I think he's afraid of me. What does his father do? His father died three years ago, I say, trying to keep it casual, like it's something to be taken lightly. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. He turns serious. I think Omar is having a hard time with your transition. As you can imagine, I see a lot of immigrant children passing through here, a lot of lives changing, a lot of feelings, many languages. Some kids' stories are so sad. I suppose you think Omar is one of them, I say. I've been trying to shield him from it all, but I see it's not working. What I can do for them is teach them enough French and socialization skills, you know, how things are here, to help them find out how they fit in. How should they fit in? Well, in Omar's case, it's how to concentrate, to be present, to communicate. I've seen him for three months, and all the other kids in our group have made advances in that time. He's not used to going to school in French or going to school at all. Maybe he missed too much. I wonder if he shouldn't stay in the third grade next year. It's already been hard for him. I had this talk with your director, Monsieur Bocre. Yes, Monsieur Bocre, and I don't want him to feel any more alienated from school than he already does. And they go on, and then Monsieur Gagnon, the teacher, says, well, you know, he's going to have to learn. And to, maybe I work too much and too hard, but I, you know, I have to um, have to make sure my students are getting along. And she says, 
I'm not home very much, but I have to work. I just, I have no choice. I have to earn money. And I, so is he getting enough attention at home? The teacher asked, well, what's that supposed to mean? And you feel the feeling of this immigrant, this poor mother who's trying to make enough to eat and clothe and house her child. And the teacher, French teacher, is he getting enough attention at home? Um, well, what is that supposed to mean? Well, you said it's just you and him. You said you work too much. Is he spending too much time alone? Is he being ignored? I can see how it might be hard for him to integrate if he sits at home alone when he comes back to school. So there's the guilt, which must have been the experience I'm thinking of Nasrallah's you know, parents when they went out to do whatever jobs and the kids were all alone. So anyway, this um, interview was very difficult. And, and then it ends up by the teacher saying to her, okay, Madame and Dad, you should speak French to your son at home. Don't speak Arabic, even though it's comfortable. You want him to learn French. Um, and they end and she goes home and she's very discouraged. So that's the scene in the class decor. So you get this, you get the sense of the of the situation and the and not through anything dogmatic, as he says. I didn't want to make this a you know sovereignty or not. I just wanted to express the experiences that. I had, or, or you know, that my character had. And so the story goes on, winter comes, there's this scene of when she decides she has to find a, a store. She realizes they don't have appropriate clothes for the winter when it gets very cold. So somebody tells her the good store to go where clothes are really not expensive is down. She ends up walking to Catherine East and finds a store where she can find not very beautiful, like she says, you know, clothes from I don't know how many years ago, but at least they're warm and bundles them all up. And her poor son's never seen so many layers and, and snow pants and all kinds of it. And, and, and she too, and she says, out of all the clothes, she had to pick something that looked reasonably. And she was, you know, nicely dressed young woman back in Lebanon. And then she realizes winter in Montreal is a whole other thing. You from here to here, all you see maybe are slip of people's eyes for six months. And that's about it, which is so true, you know. And apparently it was a particularly bad winter, that 86, 87. Um, and so the story goes on. She's doing very well at her job. She realizes that she's not the only lonely person. Even the native Quebecois, or at least the ones she encounters in her job, are very lonely and they look at her as a friendly voice in their lives. There's one man who she senses, and she knows she's not the only one who's like had this issue that maybe, you know, because her supervisor Lee says to her, you don't want to get too personal. Therefore, you don't want to ever give them your real name. So Muna becomes Mona. Very interesting, you just change one letter. So when she introduces herself, when she makes her call, answers the phone, bonjour, hello, this is Mona from da da da. And, and so she is this anonymous, unknown voice to these people, but really a lifeline to them. And it's sort of interesting that she, the immigrant who's coming here, struggling, trying to make a new life for her and her son, really living very precariously, is being a support to these other people who she's never met. So the way he writes it, you know, I mean, it turns out that it happens that yes, his mother did do exactly this kind of work, but it makes for a very good um, premise and, and, and way of writing this story. But as I said, it's not a pessimistic or depressing book. I mean, it's realistic. Throughout the book, she also, we were in, we're in Muna's head and in her imaginary life, and she is trying to keep the, um, her husband, the memories of her husband alive. She imagines herself talking to him. She imagines herself, you know, being with him and lying with him in bed at night. And she tries so hard to keep him with her as the months go on. But this is very much part of it. She tries to make her son remember his father a little bit. They have one carved wooden horse. That's what they brought with them from Lebanon. It sits there in the middle of the table in this otherwise totally impersonal apartment, which doesn't really have their stuff because it's a furnished apartment with all the things that other people had used. Um, but by the end of the book, she has gotten a little bit back of her old identity because it turns out that her son finally, the phone rings one day and there's a boy on the other line and he asks if Omar can come and play and his name is Chen. And he's a new, he's a new immigrant from China. His family, he lives with his family in the Chinatown part of the city. 
and he calls up and then when his mother is so thrilled Luna says you have a friend you have a friend and he says well I'm not exactly a friend but you know you said that if anybody asked for my phone number okay I gave it to them so she said yes 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 we're gonna go over there tell them yes we're gonna go over so on a Saturday because she works Monday to Friday they go over um and she goes to a new part of the city that she's never seen and this is Chinatown and she meets this Chang and she meets his mother Winnie and Winnie is also a new immigrant, doesn't speak very much French at all, speaks Chinese. Turns out she's an account, she was an accountant back where she came from. Her husband bought a day penner and he works there most of the day and night. Um, there's an older, she has an older child also who works in the day penner when he's not in school. And Winnie is at home. So it's at that point where Omar has a friend, at least he got invited somewhere, and they have to speak French, these two little boys, because one speaks Arabic, one speaks Chinese at home, so the only language they have in common is the French that they're learning in school. But the mothers, and Winnie, the mother, Chang's mother, invites her in, offers her this delicious meal, which she's so happy, because when things are really tight, they are reduced to eating samples of the weight loss meals that she can bring home, which are really not very good, and as... Um, a neighbor tells her, not very nutritious. You shouldn't be eating that stuff. Um, and and Winnie says to to uh, to Luna, would you teach me French? When she finds out that she speaks French and he's a French teacher, I will pay you. I will pay you ten dollars an hour. Please come every Saturday. And that ten dollars. So first Luna says, no, I wouldn't take it. She says, no, 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 no. And eventually. Winnie invites all her other Chinese immigrants, like friends. They hear about this. And Muna has this tutoring, French tutoring uh, sideline on Saturdays that is bringing in extra money. And finally, towards the end, her she's doing, she becomes the top salesperson at the company. So what we think at the beginning is going to be a scam turns out to be a very encouraging and promising career. She's promoted to assistant manager. She has this tutoring business which outgrows the apartment in Chinatown and is now being held Saturdays in a church basement. And they are about winter, finally, this interminable, bitter, cruel, indescribable Montreal winter comes to an end. They find themselves a lovely new place that she could realize that she can afford not far away, somewhere in the McGill ghetto, but in a beautiful old well-kept building. They are going to move. Her son will have uh, his, his nice room. They will have a garden with a little backyard for him to play in. And things are end on a very positive note. And at the very end, interestingly, you know, you say like with, at the beginning when they, when she gets the job and she's told, don't give your real name. So Buna, just become Mona, you know, so you, they don't know, you never know your real name. And at the end of the book, the author ends and says, um, she's, they're moving into the, into the new place and she has to sign a lease and she has to come to the, to the landlord with the first month's rent and the last month's rent that she actually hasn't. She's got all this cash because of her Saturday tutoring job. And the, Mike, the landlord takes them in, he opens the door and takes them into their empty new home. She gives him the envelope with the money and he takes the envelope, doesn't even count it. Okie dokie, he says, now sign some papers. This is the lease. Here, 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 here. Initial, print your name, and it's all yours. She starts to sign it. And then she thinks, she says, I think hard before I move ahead with what I want to do. Delicately but fluidly, I sign my name as Mona Adad. It's a minor change in an identity that no one will ever catch among all the rings and flourishes of my signature. It's mostly for me, but then I have to print it out at the end. There's nowhere to hide. And so out I come as Mona had done, but not Mona, I'm Mona on this piece of paper that will probably never be looked at again. I set the pen down and as Mona, I accept the keys. Then Mike leaves and we're in our new apartment all alone. And she says, and they look, and her son is so excited, and they look at the balcony, and they look at the backyard, and they look at the view, and the sunset, and they sit and over the mountain, because that's where they're facing, and she says, I never once thought watching a sunset would be something I would want to do. Who has the courage to expect such moments when they only ever happen in TV movies? 
but now the bottom arc of the sun is about to touch the top of Mount Royal, and I know it's arbitrary that this will be our view from now on, but it still feels like it's happening, especially for me. I know that at least half the other balconies in this neighborhood face the very same way, and that there's nothing about this world that's bending over to please me in particular. But ya Allah, I still can't wait to see it. And that's how the book ends on a very hopeful note. So I thought it was a wonderful description of this year or almost year in the life of this new immigrant, single young woman, widow, um, and her son and how they adapt, have to adapt to this new reality. And it's only, you know, and you think, well, the way it sounds like things are going to, can only go on for the better. And she's young, she's only 28 years old. Um, and it was funny because in, 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 inter, in another interview, he says that Nas, Nasrallah said, you know, when I was writing the book, I was a little nervous because in my other books, I had different voices. The first couple of them were maybe for me, like for, from a young man perspective. But here I was taking my mother's experience. I mean, mine too, a little bit, but my mother's experience and um and putting it there. So he said, I was very nervous. I gave my mother the book as a Christmas present and the novel is dedicated to her. And he said, I didn't know what to expect. And then she, she called him up when she read it and she said, you know, I really enjoyed reading this. And I have to tell you, this is the first of your books where you don't sound like an angry young man. Like you finally <laughs> grown up, Dimitri. <laughs> and he said, I realized I finally grown up. And now that I'm in my 40s, and he said, I became a dad. I don't know how old this kid or kids are. But he says, I can understand my mother more. And I understand my parents and their experiences. So it took him, I guess, to writing this book to really come to terms or decided he had come to terms with that he could write about this, that with sympathy and empathy for his parents' experience. Whereas until that time, it was still him being an angry young man for you know whatever happened to him and his unpleasant experience. But as I said, he seems to be doing quite fine. He's a lecturer at Concordia. <laughs> and for whatever reasons, moved back to Montreal, lives in the French-English environment by choice, is functioning in French um, and now seems to have made himself quite a name with Hotline as one of Canada's readers' choices. So a, a, a hopeful, upbeat look at the immigrant experience in contemporary Montreal. Recommend. <laughs> so any any questions? Anything? I just think in general, it's, um, it seems to me that this is sort of a universal uh, experience for immigrants in Canada. Yeah, they're all part of their being. They all push and, and work hard and want to want their children to be successful. And that's generally the feel. And I think that if they come with a family, they're doing it for their children. You know, if they have to give up whatever careers they had because they can't be qualified, you're doing it for a future for your children. Or there's no choice. Like <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna get killed. So yeah. Regarding the not being able to find a job. Yeah, I think at that point in time, unemployment here was about well, that that mid eighties was not a good yeah. time. I was trying to remember back, like yeah, and also if I was told this, if you want to apply to the Catholic school board, school board at that time, you had to be Catholic. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Was it was the 86? Was it still Catholic abroad or we were we in the French already? I don't remember when that switched over because I know that I knew you couldn't be Catholic, but then it became you know, no, now it's secular. Laïcité is the religion you put that, not Catholic. So I don't know, but it, but so the way he makes it here was not a religious thing, he made it that you know, he didn't have the right accent. That, they would want a Lebanese immigrant teaching. Right, if they were, yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know if there was English or French. Or I think by the time it was written, it was already the school board, the school Commission Scolaire and the English Montreal. Yeah. yeah, right. I think the Protestant Catholic was up to like the early 80s. The early 80s, yeah, I was bad about dates, but yeah, yeah, it was very clearly then. Yeah, I remember a friend of mine who was 
Protestant, I think she applied to teach and she was so, she didn't know that she came from I don't know, Nova Scotia or something and she said, they wouldn't let me because I wasn't Catholic. Like, oh, I know Jews couldn't go to Catholic school. Okay, that was a given, but then Protestants couldn't teach there. I think it was a not that school. Yeah, I'm sure they didn't want any other Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, yeah. Remember that winter because I was moving. Oh, yeah, you remember? Mid January 87. Yeah, and it was a massive blizzard that the moving truck couldn't. They couldn't shuttle up the moving truck in order to get the truck to my house on time. So they only got there like four hours late because it was massive. It was, really, it was, just it was that winter. So we could like, I guess, I can't remember that winter being yeah. a massive blizzard multiple times. Multiple so that, you know, she describes it and it's like some winters are not that bad, but I guess yeah. it's pretty yeah. Oh, yeah. And then she describes a nice storm. There was another great scene where she's like, what is this? Okay, there's snow, there's blizzard. Now there's yes. ice and trees. She's, never walked, on ice. she's yeah. never walked on ice. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, you know, you know I had a winter coat. I had a little coat and we were selling gloves. But you come here and you don't realize that there's a whole new level. <laughs> I saw everybody else just enjoying the weather. I was crying because I was so cold. You know, and my hands were frozen and I, I couldn't understand why everybody else could catch. Yeah. And so you learned you did not have the problem. What's the Swedish saying that we learned from uh, uh, who did we do? Who's the Swedish writer with the bear town? They're saying that there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. People that come from even not such warm climates. Like well, she's saying Philadelphia. That's yeah, not Philadelphia. I don't think of it like it came from like London, England. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a whole other level. Yeah, it's a different level. Well, I, I had relatives in one of and they were staying with me. I don't know, I forget what, what kind of know, within the last 20 years anyway. And it was a snowstorm, but it wasn't even really that cold. They were a couple. And we were, we had, if we had met up a big part of the family out in a restaurant for brunch on uh, Sunday. And then we were invited to go somewhere for Sunday night. And when we got back home, we said, Do we have to go out again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's something. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank See you. you. See you next month. Thank you. Thank you. He said, I have nothing. Right.